Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. And I do just, just singing that song. What, what we are sorrowful in, in the midst of loss, but, but we rejoice. We, we're, we grieve with hope. And so, so I don't want you to be overly discouraged. There's great hope for those who, who die in the Lord. There, there's no fear of death for those who know the Lord. And so I, I do want us as, as his people to, uh, to recognize that, that death is not the end for those who, are, uh, who know Jesus. And so I, I want to encourage you with the hope that comes on the other side of death. Many of you have lost loved ones who were holding fast to Christ and, and you have great hope uh, though it is sorrowful. Um, but we are going to be in Hebrews chapter four. So we, we started this sermon series a few weeks ago. This, uh, we took a break for Christmas. And then last week we looked at the life of, of William Tyndale, um, which I recognize was more of a sermon than a, or more of a lecture than a sermon. But, but I, th- I was encouraged and I hope you were um, last week in looking at the life of William Tyndale and, and how God used him specifically for us as English speakers uh, who, who have copies of our Bible. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4. And we're just going to be looking at verses 14, 15, and 16, which I'll read in just a second. But as we get to this section in Hebrews, we're coming to a transition in the book of Hebrews. And so this is a hinge point that's going to set the stage for all that's coming, in, coming ahead. Uh, and so, so it's helpful for us to just, just look at this transition because what, what he's going to transition to is the, the person and work of our great high priest. And so he's going to begin telling us how Jesus is the great high priest. And that starts here in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And, and he's going to spend the next five plus chapters defining and, and clarifying what it means that Jesus is the superior or the great High priest. And so as we, as we jump into these verses, I do think it'd be helpful just to, to step back and say, okay, well, what's the function of the priest? Because there, there's an Old Testament context here that, that this author is, is operating from. And so if you just, as you're, you're looking at Hebrews chapter four, if you just look up or look down to the end of, or to the beginning of chapter five, you'll see that in chapter five, he, he lays out a, a pretty helpful definition for the, what a priest does. There in verse one of chapter five, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to do what? To act on behalf of men in relation to God. Okay, so that's the function of the high priest. And so if you've grown up in church, maybe, maybe you've gone to Sunday school or, or whatever you've gone to, maybe, maybe you have a background where you know, oh, the, the high priest, I, I know what that, I know what he did. I know his function. I understand the language and significance of the high priest. And so when we read that Jesus is a high priest, we, we understand. If you've grown up in church, maybe you're even familiar with, with the Old Testament context and specifically in Leviticus chapter 16, which, you know, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, that's a couple months ahead and it's going to be hard to get through Leviticus, but just press on because it's worth it. But in Leviticus chapter 16, there's a specific mention of this day of atonement where the Israelites, God's people, where, where they would have a priest who at this time was Aaron at the beginning, that would be Aaron's descendants and the Levites, but they would come before the Lord. And in Leviticus chapter 16, the Lord says, okay, here's how Aaron's got to dress. Here's what he's got to do. Here's what his responsibility is as he goes in on behalf of the people. And he's going to offer sacrifices for the people of Israel. That is what he did. He was to act on behalf of men in relation to God specifically to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And so this high priest would go in yearly to make this atonement, to to make this sacrifice. And and if you read in Leviticus chapter 16, 
Aaron would make, would make sacrifice for his own sin and then for the, the sins of his house and then the sins of the people. He had to be washed and pure before he could offer sins on behalf of the people. And so he, this priest would make atonement for the people because of their sins. In other words, this entire system, every year on the calendar, as this day came, it was a reminder to the people that we need sins forgiven. We have fallen, we failed, and the high priest would be the person who would go in and interact with God on their behalf. He was their representative. God would appoint the high priest to do this as their representative. The, the Israelites couldn't go into the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go. It was, it was limited access. Only the high priest could go, and he could only go once a year. And so the people couldn't go, but the high priest went on their behalf as their representative, and this would be to the Holy of Holies. And so as they're setting up the tent, which later becomes the tabernacle, and then the temple, there's this sacred place where, where God uniquely dwells. And that is where the high priest would go to offer these sacrifices. And so he wouldn't just go in there and say, hey, now I can just hang out in the Holy of Holies. His, his responsibility was such that he had specific things to do when he would be in that place, functioning in that office. He would perform the very function that he had been appointed for, which was to, to offer a sacrifice, to, to atone for the sins of the people. And, and as he did that, and he came out, the people said, okay, we're good now. Our, our sins have been atoned for. Now, th- this relationship between man and God is now restored. And so, so God's not going to consume us. He's going to dwell among us and continue to because there's been payment for our sin and our rebellion. And so the big picture, as this priest is functioning, the relationship between Israel and God was dependent on this high priest, this mediator who would make peace possible without the high priest, without the atonement, there's no peace between sinful Israel and God. And so even if you've never been to a church before, you've never even heard about a high priest, you simply ought to know that the reason for the high priest and the result of the the continued year after year ministry of the high priest was all about access to God, relationship with God. That's why the high priest was appointed so that man and God could dwell together. There could be relationship between them. That's the issue that the high priest was appointed to address. That's the dilemma. And this is a dilemma we just have to recognize that that unholy people and holy God do not mix, or at least not well. It doesn't go well for the unholy people when a holy God dwells in the midst of an unholy people. And so the only way that that's possible, because remember, God dwelt in the midst of Israel. He led them. He was, he was gracious to them. But he does so only because of the high priest's ministry. This God-appointed man was the one who enabled peace. And without atonement, without this regular service, the Lord would indeed consume Israel. In fact, read the story of the, the two priests who offered unauthorized uh, incense to the Lord. Right? They were consumed And so to approach God without having your sins paid for would result in fierce anger and wrath. That's the reality of the context that this high priest's ministry takes place in. And so we recognize God must be approached on God's terms. We we can't decide what God is like. We can't decide how God's going to deal with us, right? The terms are set. And the reality is, the reality that existed long before Leviticus 16 and the institution of the sacrificial system, the reality is that a holy God and unholy people are not naturally at peace. That's just the reality. But instead are naturally at enmity with one another. And that is why, as we we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, this New Testament book, 
We're going to be spending the next 12 weeks or so focusing on the role of Jesus as high priest as we're working through chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way through chapter 10. The focus is on Jesus as the great high priest. And and we're going to look at that in order to recognize that Jesus is the centerpiece in the salvation of his people. Jesus as the high priest is the only source of salvation for his people and is his work as high priest that enables the salvation of his people. And so we're, we're going to see Jesus and we're going to worship Jesus and we're going to recognize the role that he plays in. And my hope is that we would hold fast to him and love him and draw near to him because he is a help for us. He is the only help for us. You need Jesus in his high priestly ministry and I need Jesus in his high priestly ministry. Without Jesus on, interceding on our behalf, we have no hope. We are consumed And so it's going to be great news as we read chapter after chapter of of what Jesus does for us. Because in Christ, we see salvation for his sinful people. We see salvation for his sinful, weak people. We see salvation for his sinful, weak, and tempted people. We see salvation for his sinful, weak, tempted, and needy people. That is who Jesus came to save. And that is you and that is me. And we need only look to him and rejoice And so the book of Hebrews, more than any other book in the New Testament, focuses on this high priestly ministry and status of Christ. And so we're we're, we're hopefully, at the end of this, we're going to understand why it is necessary for Jesus to be our high priest. In fact, the the theme of this book so far in just these first four chapters has been the the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is better. He's better. And and that's been a repetition. He's he's the superior word that's come. Better than the prophets. He's spoken through his son and he's a superior word. And and this son is superior to angels and he's superior to Moses. And and then the last passage, it could be said he's superior to Joshua because the rest he offers is superior to that that Joshua offered. And now as we turn into transition from chapter four to five, he's going to be the superior high priest to any that's ever come come before. And so he is superior to all, but especially this is going to be the largest section of Hebrews that focuses on him as the great, the superior, the better high priest. And it's that position of him as high priest that that takes center stage in our three verses this morning. Let's read these verses. Like I said, it's only three of them. Let's read them and then I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll look through this short passage. So Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but... One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that these verses would form a a rock for us, a, a support for us, a, a comfort to us. And I pray that our communion with you would, would be more constant and sweeter and, and better as a result of our studying these three verses and as a result of considering Jesus as our great high priest. And it's in, in his name that I pray, amen. 
Well, so the, 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 these verses, they, they lay out pretty simply as, as we turn to the, the outline. These three verses highlight, as I said, the high priestly ministry of Jesus. That's the focus. Okay, but the passage, as, as maybe, maybe you don't remember, but the last passage we looked at in Hebrews chapter 4, it, we've transitioned from the end of chapter 4 to, to the high priestly ministry, but he ended the verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4 in, in a passage that didn't talk about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. But instead, he was talking about the failure to enter the rest and the danger. He said, let us not fail to enter the rest. Let's strive to enter that rest that's provided through Jesus. So there's a call, don't miss it. And he ended right, by saying that, that if you fail to enter it, it's, it's, your failure is only uh, caused by disobedience and unbelief. So we've received the message, and if we respond with obedience and faith, we will enter the rest. But he says, the wilderness generation didn't. And he ended in verse 13 there of chapter four with this verse, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so that, that passage ended saying, you, you can't deal lightly with the word that God's spoken because that word's going to, going to judge you. You're gonna stand exposed having to give an account on how you dealt with what he had said and done in his son. And so it is that conclusion, this, this exposing gaze of the all-knowing God that the author brings to the forefront in order to highlight the necessity of the hearer to listen and obey the word that God's spoken, specifically the word that's come through his son. And so as we begin moving through these next chapters of Hebrews, right, the, the high priestly ministry of the son is what his focus is on, and it's the high priestly ministry that makes bearable the thought that we were just introduced to at the end of chapter, uh, in, in verse 13. And so, so he ends with, there, you're gonna be exposed before an all-knowing God one day. But don't be discouraged because, verse 14, we have a great high priest. Right? And so, so that's the transition. It's only the fact that we have a great high priest that we can bear the thought of standing before the Lord one day with all of our thoughts and deeds exposed. I mean, can, can you imagine I mean, maybe, maybe I'm alone here, but, but there are evil thoughts that have run through my brain. There are angry words that have come out of my mouth. There, there are evil acts that have been done by these hands and these feet. And one day I'm gonna stand before the Lord and be, be called to account for words and thoughts and actions. And I'm gonna stand before a holy God as a sinful man, recognizing I, I cannot survive a, a nanosecond in his presence without being consumed unless, unless there is someone interceding for me who's made propitiation, who's, who's made atonement for my sin that I, may, that I may relate and be forgiven. And so our passage draws our attention to positive reasons for perseverance. Don't give up. Yeah, you're gonna stand before him, but don't give up because you have an advocate. You have someone who's gone before you who's made a way for you and who's, who's paved the path and, and made it possible. And so he's gonna give positive motivations for holding fast. And so the assumption of, of the book of Hebrews, which we've seen and we're gonna see over and over, is that perseverance is necessary, but it's only possible by holding fast to Christ. So he's gonna keep saying, hold fast to your confession, hold fast to your high priest, draw near, trust Jesus, because perseverance is only achieved by faithfully, steadfastly believing and holding fast to Jesus. If you, if you forsake Jesus, you lose it all. 
You can't say, well, well I'm, I'm, I'm going to give up Jesus, but I want all these other benefits. There's no benefit apart from Jesus. And so the, the necessity is holding fast to Christ, forsaking Christ, turning from Christ, failing to hold fast and to persevere in trusting Christ guarantees a disqualification or, or a big fat DNF on your final race results. Failing to hold fast to Christ leads to falling dead in the desert, as we saw in chapter four. And so, so the, the exhortation is to, to hold fast to Christ because you don't persevere apart from that. And that's gonna be a theme, that's gonna be an assumption that, that's visited over and over again. But as we get here to our, our verses, there are two exhortations that follow two statements. And so the outline, we see the first statement, which is about the position of our high priest. That's verse 14. There's a statement followed by an exhortation, which is hold fast to your confession. Then there's a second statement, verses 15 into 16, which talks about the experience of our high priest, that, he's, that he's, he knows what it's like to be tempted, which is followed by a second exhortation, which is draw near to him. So these two exhortations, this is the application of this passage, of this sermon is hold fast to your confession and draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Those are the two points of application that we'll come back to at the end. But those are the imperatives of this passage, of these verses, and they're both followed by statements that are the grounds for the exhortation. Okay, so, so let's start there with that first statement, the position of our high priest there in verse 14. Now notice how the logic of verse 14 works. The statement is the ground for the exhortation. So verse 14 begins, Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, ground, exhortation, let us hold fast our confession. Since we have this, let us do this. Right? That's, that's how the ground and the exhortation works. And so that's the relationship. Another way of putting this would, would be to say that because Jesus is our high priest, who's passed through the heavens, we ought to hold fast our confession. And so his point, what he's, the point he's making is that Jesus being our high priest and having passed through the heavens has something to do with us holding fast to our confession. And so this author, we ought not to lose the fact that, that he's including himself with his hearers. We, he says, have a great high priest. This is the reality. He says, we have a great high priest. Not just a high priest, but a emphatically great high priest, a high high priest, or a great great priest. It's redundant to make the emphasis. This is a superior high priest, unlike any high priest that's ever gone before. And the author says, we have him. We have this one. And again, this is going to be worked out in coming chapters, but, but now it's, it's simply enough to stay, or all that he states is that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, so, so what does he mean? We, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Now, now some people, and I think this is partly right, a lot of commentators will say, well, this is simply to say that he's victorious. He's been raised from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. He's victorious. So he's passed through the heavens, which is a sign of victory, which I think that's, that's partly the point here. He's been raised. Right? So, so when he says we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his people. I, I think that's part of what he means by he's passed through the heavens, but I don't think that's mainly what he means. I think more significant point that's being made here has to do with the work of Christ as the high priest, specifically the location of his high priestly ministry. It's, it's through the heavens. It's in the heavens. So this high priest, this great high priest ministers in the heavens, not here on earth, which is where every other high priest has ministered. 
And so this point will be explained in detail in chapter 9, but, but here, suffice it to say, the superiority of Christ's high priestly ministry has to do with the fact that he is now, he is now interceding or ministering in the real, the true, the substantive holy of holies. So, so there is a holy of holies that every other holy of holies was patterned after. And so in the tabernacle and in the temple, the Holy of Holies, that, that place that no one could go, that was a pattern or a shadow that was, that was constructed after the real Holy of Holies, which is in the heaven where God dwells. And that is the precise place that Jesus has now entered into. And so this high priest ministers in the heavens where, where the, the true high priestly ministry has to take place. I mean, just to give you a a little foretaste, in in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, notice the logic here. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is a tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Jesus has once for all entered into the holy places. And so where's the, the high priest in Israel? They enter into the holy of holies where God did uniquely dwell on earth, But Jesus, as the great high priest, has entered not into a holy of holies here on earth, but into the holy of holies, into the holy place where God dwells in the heavens. For Christ has entered, this is Hebrews 11, 24, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so Christ is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. His high priestly ministry is greater, and it's unlike any other high priestly ministry because it's taking place in the heavens, in the, in the very presence of God, the holy of holies. And so we have a great high priest who's entered in there, and, and he dwells there. That's where he is seated, interceding constantly on our behalf. Because of his ministry, it's not in man-made temples. It's not in a type or shadow. His interaction, his intercession takes place after he has passed through the heavens. And so, so this language is, is signifying this, the, the, the place of this ministry. And so just like the Old Testament priests, they would pass through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. Jesus has passed through the heavens. There's a, there's a break. He's gone through to, to a place that was off limits, and now he is there as our great high priest. And notice that the the, the high priest is Jesus. He wants us to know this is Jesus. This is the human man, the one who was made like us. But but he's not just Jesus. He's Jesus, the son of God. This is humanity and deity. This is incarnation, the the joining of two natures into one person, fully man and fully God. This is the son. Our author has done done a lot in establishing the son. This is the divine son up in chapter one, verse three. This son, this Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one whose throne is forever. This is the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. This is the ruler over all of God's house. That's who this son of God is. This is none other than the Lord himself. And this is the mystery and majesty of the incarnation, Jesus, the divine son. And so having established the son of God as the divine, the second person of the Trinity, now what our author is doing is saying, this divine son is the one who took on flesh and is now the high priest for us. He's fully man, sharing in flesh and blood, making, made, like his, in his, made like his brothers in every respect. That has been the point. He is fully, truly human while at the same time being fully, truly God. 
And so he has passed through the heavens. And we have this great high priest, and that's where he is ministering, which leads to exhortation number one, let us hold fast our confession. That's who he is. That's what he's done. That's where he is. Let us then hold fast our confession. Maybe your translation says, let us hold firmly the faith we profess. This was language that was mentioned earlier in chapter three, where Jesus is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so this confession, it's not worked out explicitly. What, what does he mean confession? The faith we profess, our confession? Well, we don't know exactly what it, what it, what it means, but his point is that this confession cannot be separated from, from Christ being the Son of God, the, the divine Son who is high priest. That, in other words, the confession cannot be separated from the identity of Jesus, the Son of God. And so since he's passed through the heavens and is interceding on behalf of his people, the author would ask, well, why, why would you want to stop holding fast to him? Why would you ever stop holding fast to him? Why would you refuse to confess him? Since he is the great high priest who has done this, the right and fitting response is to hold fast to our confession, which is that Jesus is the son of God and he is our great high priest and we're, we're trusting him. We're confessing him. And it tells us at, in this time, we don't know all the specifics, but there were pressures facing the, the Christians here probably cultural pressures, probably potential suffering, so, so that their proclamation, their confession that Jesus is Lord in the, in the public realm probably had some pushback or some potential for pushback. And some of the Christians were, were, were considering falling back and saying, okay, we, we can do the whole God, Yahweh, old covenant thing, but this Jesus thing, that, that's too much for us. We're just, gonna, we're, just gonna, we're just gonna roll it back a little bit. And this author is saying, no. Don't roll back from Christ. Don't go back to this old way. The new way is superior, and it's what the old way was pointing to. And if you, and if you roll it back, you lose Jesus. We just, I, I think we can sympathize. Yeah, yeah, there is friction. There's discomfort. There, there's the potential of public shame for, for holding fast to a confession in our day and time that, that Christ is Lord, that salvation is in him alone, that, that he's the one mediator. There is heat that comes for a Christian who will stand publicly and proclaim that. And so, so we, can, we can somewhat feel the pressure of, of denying, yeah, I'm just not gonna say much about it. Or, or yeah, I'll just, I'll just dial it back. Our author wants us to know the same thing he wanted his audience to know with absolute clarity that to fall away from Christ, to, to loosen your grip, to let him slip through your fingers is not among the possible options for the Christian. You, you should delete that from your, from, that, that should not be a category in your mind. Forsaking Christ is not a possible option. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how tough it gets, no matter what the, the heat is, forsaking Christ is not an option for the believer because when you forsake Christ, you lose it all. And regardless of the struggle, regardless of the cost, it's always, it's always worth it to hold fast to our confession because he who promised is faithful because we have a great high priest who is interceding for us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. That, that's what the author was saying later in chapter 10. And so that's the first exhortation. Hold fast your confession. Don't cower away. Hold fast, persevere. May we like William Tyndale and the, the saints of old as we face potentially a, an execution for 
our commitment to Christ. May we with boldness pray for those who are heading up our persecution. But that's the first exhortation, which leads then, verse 15, there's the second statement, which followed by a second exhortation. So the second statement there in verse 15, if you look, has to do with the the experience of our high priest. So verse 14, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, next statement, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so having just said, we do have a high priest who's passed through the heaven, he, he then says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. And, and so this is a double negative. We do not have a high priest unable. And he's emphasizing this is not who our high priest is. So he could have very easily said, we do have a high priest who's ha- passed through the heavens and we do have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us. But he didn't say it that way. He said, we do not have a high priest who's not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he probably does so because he's just left the, ho- lo- the lofty heights of the heavens saying, that's where Jesus is now. And, and so if I'm hearing my high priest is in, in the heavens, he's not here now. How can he help me here now? Does he know what it's like in this co- context, in this culture? He, he's far removed, out of sight, out of mind. How can he help me here and now? That's a, a potential objection to the high priestly ministry of Jesus in heaven. At least the, the high priest on earth, we could see him come out of the Holy of Holies and know, okay, he's done it. We can't see him. He's there. And so the author, I think, says he is in heaven, but he also, he's not so far removed that he doesn't know what you're going through. He doesn't know the struggle. He, in fact, he is able to sympathize. Jesus' exalted status as high priest might seem to imply that he's far removed from our human experience in a hostile world. And the author of Hebrews wants his readers to know that assuming that, assuming that Jesus is unable to help because of his passing through the heavens, that couldn't be more wrong. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like because he was just like us. That's the point. He knows what it's like to face temptation, to face pressure, to feel feel tempted to be ashamed, to, to come face to face with your weakness. Jesus knows this because he was like us. This was what the end of chapter two, a point that was made in chapter two, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so the incarnation, the true incarnation, enables sympathy. Jesus, as our great high priest, can deal gently with us because he's gone through what we have gone through. He lived human life in a fallen world. And so it is comforting that the the author of Hebrews wants us to be encouraged and comforted by the fact that the full humanity of Jesus, to say that Jesus was fully human, means to say that he experienced the full range of human temptation. Jesus has been tempted. He's experienced the whole gamut of temptation. Now, now he's not saying he's experienced every specific manifestation of temptation. Maybe that's your thing. Well, how in the world has he gone through every specific uh, temptation? That's not his point. His point is there's a full range. So so Jesus didn't experience what it's like to be tempted to neglect the responsibility that you have because of Facebook or or an iPhone. He, he, He doesn't know what that's like. That's a specific, unique temptation to our time and place. But that's not the point. It's not specifics. It's the full range. He has been tempted. The point is that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to neglect a responsibility. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted to be angry at, at a friend who's, who stabbed you in the back or let you down. He knows what it's like to be tempted to talk bad about someone who's, who spread rumors about you. He knows what it's like to, to be tempted to doubt God's goodness to you because of certain life circumstances. He knows what it's like to be tempted to judge someone as inferior because of their race or ethnicity or political views or educational background. He knows what it's like to be tempted to, to make sure that everyone there is, is nothing, that everyone there knows that he knows everything they don't know. Like, can you imagine that temptation? And he's just hanging at small talk at the temple and people saying, well, uh, this, this, is what, this is what this Old Testament passage means. I mean, how easy a tempt to say, oh, actually, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. Here's the right answer, right? How tempting would that be to, to say, look how smart I am. He knew everything. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus, the one who took on flesh, experienced what it's like to have weaknesses, And he knows what it's like for sin and temptation to meet those weaknesses, or at least for temptation, not sin, but he knows what it's like for for your weakness to to face temptation. He's able to sympathize. One commentator says, says this, naturally, when this letter says that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, our writer is not thereby implying that within his lifetime, Christ encountered every possible different temptation. He could hardly have experienced personally the specific temptations Yet at the root of the different temptations encountered by men and women throughout the wide range of human experience, there are a number of basic trials or tests, and Jesus certainly knew what it was like to meet these and emerge victoriously from the struggle. He knew those temptations, which if unconquered, led to doubt, despair, and disobedience towards God. He knew those temptations, which which, if left unconquered, led towards lovelessness towards others and towards selfish preoccupation with our own desires. And so Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to to be beset with weaknesses. And and one author even said that he knows it even more than we do. I mean, think about you or I, when we're we're faced with temptation, now sometimes we are victorious and we conquer and the temptation is is dialed back. But but sometimes, think think of the temptation meter going up four, five, six, seven, and and then we lie down. We're done. Okay, it only got up to six. Jesus had the full force of the temptation and he withstood. He never lied down. And so he, so he knew the full extent of every temptation, yet he was victorious. But, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't know what it was like to, to suffer or to feel what human weakness can do. And, and that's the difference. We, we can't lose the, the difference. This is a key truth regarding the person of Jesus Christ. The difference is, although he experienced what it's like to be tempted and, never, and, to, and to be confronted by human weakness, he never sinned. He never sinned. He never sinned. He never gave in. He, he, he never was conquered by temptation. The weaknesses never won. So he was like us in every way, except that he didn't sin ever. And in fact, this is a key truth of how he's able to be our great high priest. He doesn't have sins of his own to offer sacrifices for. He was sinless. And he's able to offer himself as a sacrifice for others. And the point, coming back to to verse 15, the point is in all of this is simply that because Jesus knows what it's like, because he's able to sympathize with his weakness, he can help. He can help you. He's an advocate for you. He's able to help, which is the point of the exhortation there in verse 16. Because Jesus can sympathize with us, because he knows what it's like to be tempted, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Some translations say, let us approach the throne of grace boldly. Right? So, so that, 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 that's the idea. Approach with confidence this high priest. The, the sympathetic heart of Jesus is what motivates us to draw near to him. That's his point. Be, because he knows what it's like, let us draw near to him. The, the sympathetic heart of Jesus is what motivates us to draw near to him. I mean, there's so much that should be said about this one verse. I mean, consider the high priestly context. Who is being being exhorted to draw near? It's us. Let us, those who hold fast our confession, let us draw near. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we can draw near. I mean, in this context, it was only the the high priest who could enter the Holy of Holies. And that was the only one who could once a year. And now the author is saying, do it whenever you want and do it boldly and do it now. There's no boundaries, there's no limits because we have a great high priest who, who knows what it's like. He is he's endearing us, draw near now. And then, and every time in between, the people of God themselves may enter the very presence of God on a continual basis. You're never gonna be shut out because you have a high priest who's gone before. Let us draw near. But notice also how we're supposed to draw near, with confidence or boldly. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, which is simply the, the, the dwelling place of God, the, the throne. This is where God dwells, and we're to draw with confidence near to this throne of grace. And we're going to go there with confidence because look at what we can expect to receive. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us do this that we may receive mercy and find grace. And so, so here he's laying out, this is the remedy for our weaknesses. Now, this is the remedy for our temptations. This is the remedy for our struggles. We have a great high priest who understands and calls us to come near. I mean, let that, let that sink in. In the face of your weaknesses and temptations and struggles and failings, Jesus says, draw near. This is counterintuitive for us in, as fallen creatures in a sinful world. I mean, just think about it, when, when you're discouraged, when, when you've committed sin, when you failed to do what you ought to have done, when, when you've been found out or exposed, when, when you've disobeyed, when you're discouraged and doubting, right? In all of these times, especially when these times, when, when your weaknesses have led to this disobedience or this sin, Right? Your impulse, my impulse is not to draw near. Right? When we're feeling the weight, we're feeling the guilt, we're feeling the, the, the embarrassment, our impulse is not to draw near, but to drift away. I mean, we all, when we know we failed, when we know we've, we, we, we've dropped the ball, the last place we want to be is before the one we think is going to be the most disappointed. And if you think your weakness and your failing is going to disappoint Jesus, you need Hebrews 4.16. Your weakness is to cause you to draw near because your weakness is what endears you to the great high priest. I mean, I, we don't have pets, but I've seen in movies and I've heard people that talk, if you come in and, and you see a trash bag destroyed and, and your dog is sitting there, they won't look you in the eye. They know what they've done. They know they've done wrong. Or, or I do have kids. We have four kids, and I know what it's like when they do something wrong. They, they're ashamed, and they're hiding something, and it's evident. They, they don't want to come to me. 
They'll go a long way around, or they won't pass by. Their guilty consciences tell them, run away from dad, because you're in trouble. And the remedy, right, so that's our natural, that's our natural inclination impulse. When we're in trouble, we need to run away from the one that we've, that we've disobeyed. But the remedy, the exhortation here in Hebrews 4.14 is the opposite. Don't run away. Draw near, he says. And draw near, he says, with confidence. And the reason for confidence, it, it's not because, well, it's not that bad. Right? That's how we tend to make things okay. Well, it's not that bad. It's okay. It's not that bad. No, it is that bad. And so it's not that it's not that bad that we are to draw near with confidence. That's not what we draw near. We draw near with confidence because Jesus knows what it's like to face weaknesses and temptation, and he's sympathetic. And as our high priest, he is eager to help Our great high priest is eager. I mean, get this, he is eager to give mercy and grace. And he's eager to do that, not when you're doing well. That's when we want to go to the throne of grace. Hey, look, I had a quiet time. It's January 3rd, and I haven't fallen behind my Bible reading plan yet. I'm going to go to the throne of grace because he's going to be happy with me. This is saying the opposite. It's when your weaknesses and temptations and failings are, are before your face. He knows what it's like and he's able to sympathize and he's eager for you to draw near. And he's eager to, to dispense mercy and grace in your time of need. That's why, that's why he came. And one commentator writes, to be an object of mercy means that one is a defenseless and pathetic, in a defenseless and pathetic condition. When people ask for mercy, their resources are non-existent and their only hope lies in evoking someone's pity. And this is usually done in the language of, of pleading. But our high priest is already moved with pity towards his people before they come to him and ask for him. We don't have to say, hey, please, please have mercy on me. Please, this last time. No, he's already disposed towards being merciful to us because he knows what it's like. His mercies are tender, which means he does not show mercy with a grudge. He delights to be merciful time and time again. Did you hear that? He doesn't, he doesn't show mercy with a grudge. He delights, Jesus delights to be merciful time and time again. When we draw near, we find abundant mercy and sufficient grace. When we draw near, Jesus doesn't plug his nose at our approach. He isn't grossed out or surprised by our weaknesses or failings. He knows them and he sympathizes with them. Again, this is contrary to the way we think it works. We project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. Human nature dictates that the wealthier a person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person, the more they are put off by the ugly. And without realizing what we're doing, we quietly assume that the one so high and exalted has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and the unclean. We think, well, that's what everyone's like. So Jesus is high and holy, must, must, must have difficulty being near us, the despicable and unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us, we agree, but, but he plugs his nose. That's what we think. But the truth of this passage, passage is that the high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. And listen, this, this is what one author gives this illustration. He doesn't reach out and touch us the way a boy reaches out and touches a slug for the first time. Do you have that picture in your mind? A little boy playing, he finds a slug, a slimy, gross slug, and he reaches out and touches it. How does he touch it? Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. That, that's not how Christ touches us. 
Christ is gentle and lowly of heart. He is able to sympathize, to suffer with us in our weaknesses. And he's eager to give us mercy and grace in our time of need. Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Believer, we can approach with confidence because we know that we will be received. That is who our high priest is. He receives and helps the weak and needy. We don't, we don't approach wondering if we'll be accepted or not. We can with confidence draw near. And that, that's, the, that's the application that I need to draw out here. That's it. Let us draw near. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to wonder about God's disposition towards us. We only draw near and do so with confidence, knowing that we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. If we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted just as we are, but without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to him, to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're all going through different circumstances, challenges, situations right now. We're all having, we all have varying times of need. Right? As many people are in here, that, that's as many times of need as, as we are going through. We all have different weaknesses. We all, we all have different unique challenges. But we all have a great high priest who's eager to receive us and to dispense mercy and grace for our specific time of need. You have, a, you have an unfathomable resource to access in your time of need. And, and that's, how, that's how we hold fast our confession. We, we draw near continually, regularly to the throne of grace for help in our time of need. And, and that's how we persevere. Drawing near plays a vital role in persevering. So these, these two exhortations to, to draw near, to hold fast the confession. This is done recognizing the high priestly work of Jesus. And so let us, let us commune with God. Let us draw near regularly, as often as we need to. In fact, let us live near the throne of grace this year. Never strain too far for our weaknesses in this life will constantly be before us. We will, always, we will constantly be in need of help in time of need. Let me pray for us.